would you turn in your Bible to Matthew 28 as we continue our snail's pace here in looking at the final five verses of this marvelous gospel, Gospel of Matthew chapter 28. Uh, we've repeated your memory verse for Matthew 28, 18 to 20. We've used it before, but this is the idea of just reinforce it and to hopefully have it uh, echoing through our minds and becoming a part of us as we're uh, taking some time to reflect on some of the details that Jesus uh, involve, includes in this great commission. Let's begin ver in verse 16. Again, we'll reread re the text. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, for lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now this section of Scripture has been called the Great Commission. And that begs the question, what is a commission? And I've got, I looked online and got my Webster's definition. A commission is an authorization. It is a command to act in a prescribed manner or to accomplish a prescribed task. And so in this passage, Jesus authorizes, he charges his followers to make disciples of all people groups from that moment forward until the end of the age. Now this commission, as we've noted earlier, was not a suggestion, and it's not optional. With all heavenly and earthly authority, Jesus commanded his 11 apostles to make disciples by adhering to certain ministry essentials. And it's these essentials that we've begun to sort of unpack week after week. And one of them we looked at earlier, it has to do with the three participles that have to do with this a particular couple of verses. The main verb is make disciples. And how do we do that? We follow these main participles. Number one, instead of hunkering down in some secluded, remote community, Jesus commissioned his followers to go. And so there's a sense in which we're to go across the street, we're to go around the world, we're to go to those who do not, do not know of Christ and do not know what he has done in the gospel. And secondly, Jesus directed his followers to baptize those who have been united by faith into Jesus' death and resurrection. Last week we looked at uh, an understanding of what that meant. Through the waters of baptism, a disciple publicly portrays his or her new status, their new loyalties, uh, his or her new identity as a member of the church, the body of Christ. So this morning we're going to consider the third ministry essential. There's going there's baptizing, and now this morning, verse 20. What is needed to develop a true disciple? They need to be teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded them. Now, when you think about it, it's not surprising that Jesus would include this stipulation because the word disciple means learner, someone who's taught. And so Jesus had spent the previous three years teaching his apostles, and he instructed them as they walked from village to village. 
He instructed them as they rode in a boat during a dangerous storm. He instructed them as they gathered in the temple complex uh, three times a year for the holy feasts. He instructed them as Jesus responded to the objections of the religious leaders as they continually found fault with what he was doing and what he was saying. And Jesus also taught them uh, as he ministered to the crowds, as he responded to the needy people around him who were constantly asking for help. And he taught them also as they shared meals together as a group uh, uh, frequently, uh, as we read throughout the Gospels. And Jesus was a masterful teacher. One of the things we need to look for as we read the Gospels is to realize Jesus is purposefully teaching and intentionally instructing his disciples in ways that he very carefully choreographed. He taught with his words. He would ask profound and probing questions that would reveal so many things about the hearts of people that he talked to. He taught surprising parables that would have twists and turns that people wouldn't expect when they listened as he taught the stories. He, he also confronted false teachers. He warned about the tribulation that was sure to come. But he did more than just speak as a teacher. Jesus, clearly with his actions taught unspeakable, uh, powerful impact uh, lessons to his disciples. For example, when he responded to the needy people around him and he responded with compassion toward the outcasts, clearly that was teaching a lesson for his disciples. And particularly with that time when Jesus modeled selfless ministry in such an unforgettable way, when Jesus himself got down on his knees and he washed the feet of his own disciples, I assure you that lesson they never forgot. So it's interesting that Matthew now, as he compiles his gospel, he does so in such a way, I believe more and more as I've looked at it, it probably was designed to be a discipleship manual. And he includes in this discipleship manual five large sections of Jesus' teaching. We've looked at those, at most of those. We actually skipped over one, unfortunately, but we'll get back to that someday. Um, but Jesus was presented here as one who had tremendous uh, uh, large segments of teaching uh, sort of paralleling Moses, the great lawgiver, the great teacher who uh, from years ago, the great prophet. And so Moses gave five books of the Torah. So Jesus gave five sections of tremendously important teaching that is more authoritative or has the same authority and more authority than even the teaching of Moses in the Torah. And that brings us now to the point about Jesus, who's now placed such a high priority on his instruction to his followers. What was his goal? Number three in your notes, as we start off here. His goal was this, to develop lifelong learners who think and act like him. Developing lifelong learners who thought and who would act like him. Now I want us in our time this morning to think about and explore three implications of what this third ministry essential, the idea of teaching others to observe everything Jesus commanded. When it comes to disciple making, what are three implications of this? Number one, comprehensive, te comprehensive teaching is required for true disciples. Comprehensive teaching. If true disciples are to be made according to Jesus' standards, they must have more than superficial knowledge of his teaching. 
Jesus insisted that they must be taught, notice verse 20, to observe all that I commanded you. Not some, not a portion, not 85%, but all of it. And some people have a tendency to define discipleship on their own terms. They focus exclusively on the blessings. They focus exclusively on the promises of Jesus. And they overlook the difficult sayings that are so often found in Jesus' teaching. For example, the sixth chapter of John is one of these examples of the Gospel of John. We read the multitude that Jesus had previously just fed all of these thousands of people miraculously. And in so doing, they're ready to take him and force him at that moment to be their king because they're thinking this guy is going to satisfy all of our physical needs. He is going to provide for us just like Moses provided for the people of Israel in the wilderness. Here is the one indeed we want to crown as king. But at the end of the chapter, Jesus makes these bold statements. John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. That was a shocking statement for these folks to hear. Verse uh, uh, 63, he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing, Jesus says. That's another radical statement for them to hear. And then he says this, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement, implying that Jesus has what they desperately need. It's all to be found in him, not in the law, not in Moses. It is to be found in Jesus. Life is to be found in him, eternal life. In other words, they were saying, this is difficult to accept. And then if you keep reading in verse 65, it says, no one can come to me, Jesus said, unless it has been granted to him from the Father. And the next verse says this. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Some people, when it comes to being a disciple, they like to claim that they are a Christian, they are a disciple, but they like to define discipleship down. They emphasize the blessings of grace and mercy found in Jesus, but they overlook the repentance and the counting of the cost of discipleship. They accept, quote-unquote, Jesus as their personal Savior, unquote, and then they ignore the demands of that same Jesus who said in Matthew 10, 38, He who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Interesting how some people claim the crown, but they refuse to take up the cross. Now, the familiar example of teaching on this particular topic is Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor during the era of the Nazi regime in Germany. And his opposition to Hitler, his opposition to the anti-Jewish policies that were put in place, resulted ultimately in Bonhoeffer's martyrdom as he was killed uh, in a concentration camp just weeks before the liberation, April 1945. So he died for his strong convictions and his insistence on speaking the truth against what was widely accepted among many German pastors and German churches 
of that day. And here in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer sounded the warning against what he called cheap grace, which included those who, quote, preach forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, and communion without confession. Again, Bonhoeffer's comments, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross. He went on to explain, on the other hand, what costly grace looks like. He said cost, costly grace costs a man his life. It is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, Bonhoeffer wrote, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. He says, costly grace is the incarnation of God. Unquote. And so again, avoidive we are to avoid selective standards. We're to look at the all-inclusive range of Jesus' instruction. He said many wonderful promises and assurances he gave to so many, but he also made very difficult statements of what was required in following him. And I'd like to add one other thought about this idea of inclusiveness or comprehensiveness in his teaching. Notice that Jesus' comprehensive teaching addressed so many different issues and life concerns and topics he did not just talk about one thing all the time we find in jesus lessons that he taught in matthew 5 on the authority of scripture on the priority of loving god and loving other people matthew 22 he gave instruction on how to pray matthew 7 how to address and how to resolve and why we are to resolve conflict matthew 18 Jesus also spoke to the nature of the kingdom in the 13th chapter of Matthew. He talked about the need to trust God to replace the tendency we have to worry and to be anxious, Matthew 6. He taught about the dangers of false teachers, Matthew 7, and on and on and on, the cost of following him, Luke 9, etc. It's incumbent of all of us, if we've responded to the call of Jesus to be his followers, we must apply the full breadth of his teaching to our lives and not just the topics that we find that we think are agreeable or palatable or encouraging to us. Jesus has some very strong statements against dealing with sin in our life. He talks about cutting off your hand, cutting off your foot, gouging out the eye. You take decisive steps to deal with areas of sin in our life so that we don't just somehow compromise and let it control us and lead us into bondage. Indeed, Jesus' teaching is wide-ranging. To what extent are you exposing yourself to the broad teaching of Jesus? Or do you re just read the favorite passages that you like and oh, skip over the ones that you find yourself saying, well, that's, I don't know, that's too hard, I don't want to deal with that. It's comprehensive. All he has instructed us in. And that's why it's helpful to keep reading through your scriptures. Keep reading through the gospel. Don't just get stuck in one place as you read the word and apply it to your life in a very thoughtful and prayerful way. 
Secondly, I'd like to point out to us regarding the implications of the need to uh, instruct disciples, we need to notice that the character, Jesus is concerned about the character of well-taught disciples. When Jesus referred to making disciples, he did not have in mind what oftentimes we think of as times of instruction in which you are seated, seated in a hard chair with a desk in front of you and you have a pencil in your hand and you're writing down supposedly notes which someone is blabbering on in front of the room and it happens for 45 minutes and then you're over and you shut your books and you move on to something else. I can think back to my philosophy class which took place at 2 o'clock three days a week when I was in college and I can literally tell you that having had lunch in my stomach and talking about a topic that was way up there in the stratosphere. How many of you have ever taken a philosophy class? Okay. Well, I don't know what you got out of your class, but I would sit there physically, and I was trying my best to follow along, and when I heard something I thought was interesting, I'm starting to write, and literally, no, there's no joke, there would be lines going down the page where I'd fall asleep in the middle of the sentence because I was so bored out of my mind and I couldn't understand what in the world they were talking about and I was sleepy in the afternoon. I was sitting there being instructed. It made no impact on my life at all. That's not what Jesus is talking about. When he says to give them, teaching them to observe all I commanded you, Jesus is not thinking about a classroom where he, someone is just saying, point number three and you can't even recall what you even heard he says listen what he has in mind is he has in mind impacting his students in terms of how they live and who they are he's not just imparting words and facts and concepts jesus taught his students by telling them the truth, and then he modeled the truth so that the truth would change their lives. Not merely just to get them to think a certain way, although that is critically important. What we think is absolutely key. But watch this now. His goal was for his disciples to not merely think like him, but to be like him. That's radical. Believe me, my philosophy teacher, he could have stood on top of the desk and screamed the top of his lungs. I didn't get it, and I still wouldn't probably get it. My puny mind couldn't grapple and hang on to those concepts. But when I'm at the feet of Jesus, there is that which I need to apply to my life, and I need to gaze carefully into his life and look at what he's saying, look what he's doing, and have it impact me. Luke chapter 6, verse 40. Very interesting verse. Luke 6, 40 says this. This is Jesus now. A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. If we have been fully trained, we will be like our teacher. That means we will literally reach our teacher, the teacher's level. We will rise up to the point where we begin to think like them and then begin to act like them and really get it. Be like them. I've been reading uh, Spiritual Maturity, a book by J. Oswald Sanders, uh, a great uh, missiologist, a guy who led mission organization for many years, very godly man, wrote these words, expanding on the idea that learning is to be that which changes our character, changes our life. He says, implicit in the word disciple is the idea that, 
of one who learns with a purpose of translating the lessons, watch this now, translating the lessons that you're learning into action. A Christian disciple is a volunteer learner in the school of Christ. Jesus first invites us, come unto me, and then what does Jesus say? He follows it with, come after me. So we come to Christ at the beginning of our Christian life, surrendering to Him, confessing Him as Lord, baptized, and then what? We follow after Him. We follow in His ways. We imitate Him. You see, it's not coincidental that Jesus preached one of His first public sermons found in Matthew his first, uh, 5 through 7, 5, 6, and 7. His first sermon dealt with what? The beginning of the sermon dealt with the qualities that are to characterize true disciples. He starts there. In the chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus set forth what? Eight Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over sin. The meek. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those who are merciful. Those who are pure in heart. And those who are peacemakers. You see, Jesus spoke at length about the character of his followers in that last extended time of instruction also when he was on the, in the upper room with his disciples as he had another long teaching session, chapters 13 to 17 of John's Gospel. Listen to what he said in John chapter 15, verse 8. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove that you're my disciples. The bearing of fruit gives evidence that you're a disciple of Christ. What's he talking about? Well, in the larger context there, Jesus was talking about the metaphor of a vine and of two kinds of branches on a, on a, uh, a grapevine. The branches that have been pruned and the branches that are abiding in the vine, that is, drawing their sustenance from the vine, and they carry it out and produce fruit. Those are, that's one kind of branch. Then there's another kind of branch that's just unfruitful. There's no sign of any fruit on it at all. And it reminds me every time, every spring, when it comes to the days in which I'm pruning roses over here, I debate whether I'm going to do it another year or not because every year I don't see much signs of, of uh, significant growth in my roses. But I cut off all of the branches where once spring has come and the warmer weather, you look for where the growth is starting to take place. And if you see a stalk where there's no growth, chop. I want to make sure to get rid of all the dead. Why? Because I want the new growth to produce and to be healthy and to bring forth what? Give me some rosebuds, man. Give me some beautiful rosebuds with that incredible aroma and scent that's unmatched. That's what I'm out here getting all stuck with those thorns for. That's why I'm trying to fertilize this thing and keep it going is because I'm looking for those roses. The same thing is true with Jesus' ministry. He doesn't want just people who, who, didn't, who are willing to listen to all of what he says if they don't what? Translate it into their life and show fruit, the fruit of Christ-likeness. That's what he's looking for. True disciples who maintain close communion with Jesus and who meditate upon his word and who then take his word and they put it into practice are, after a while, what? They're going to bear the fruit of, hopefully, Christ-likeness. And true disciples are not merely those who are well-taught in that they can just ramble off to you, rattle off to you, all sorts of theology. 
That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But that's not what it means to be well taught. If that's all you do is you know theology in your mind. He's looking for people who have been incorporated into Jesus' teaching and they have so meditated upon it and so applied it to their life that what? That their lives now incorporate the idea of obedience to Jesus and his teaching in their everyday life and they are now being transformed by him. They're no longer what they used to be. They're now being changed as Jesus instructs them, saying, listen, stop doing this, start doing this. See, Jesus' disciples learn of him and are changed by him so that their character begins more and more to resemble the character of Christ. In John 13, after that very awkward moment, those instructional moments in which those disciples, wow, were they ever embarrassed. Waiting for somebody to wash the feet, it was a tradition, a cultural thing, nobody did it. Jesus gets down on his knees puts on that additional garment and he lays aside the garment and he takes up that bowl and washes their feet one after the other. And he says to his disciples at the end of the day, he says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Did he say after that, because you have clean feet? No. Did he say, because you're able to explain biblical principles of love? And that you can write and explain wonderful insights into biblical love in ways that are so impressive? That's not how people know you're my disciple. Is it because you can give all your money to feed the poor? That's not necessarily how you're going to know your disciple. Why? He says this, if you have love for one another, they'll know you're my disciple. Do you see how he talks about it's got to affect your character, how you deal with other people. And so that affects how you deal with your spouse if you're married. It deals with how you deal with your children, if you have children. It deals with how you deal with your boss at work, or your neighbor, or your relatives, or the people around you, or the people in our church family. Is the character of Christ becoming more evident in how you deal with people? And Jesus says, I want you, if you're going to be my disciple, to think through applying my instruction and my commands to how that works out in your everyday life, because I've spoken the issue of how you deal with other people. I showed you by modeling it. I got down on my knees and I washed the feet of my disciples. I want you to think about what service means in your world. There's so much more we could say about that. I think I've made the point. At this point, I realize after I've thought about these things, I always say to myself, wow, I think I've just laid a heavy burden on everybody. Because we talked about the comprehensive nature. We have to think through everything Jesus taught. We can't just do some of them. And then think about the challenge of having it applied to our lives. It's overwhelming sometimes. Hear me on this third point, please. Hear me. The third insight in this text regarding the importance of teaching others to follow everything Jesus had instructed, we need to know that there's comfort here for slow-to-learn disciples. Are you a member of that group? I'm a member of that group, a lifelong member of the slow-to-learn disciples. I'm one of them, and I gladly admit it. Because if you look at the disciples, you realize, you know, they were the same way. Teaching his disciples to observe all that he commanded them is such a high standard. But do you notice that Jesus spoke this commission to people he knew who were not quick learners? <laughs> He'd been working with them for three years. Jesus taught them a lesson. And then they'd take that lesson and what? They'd fail to apply it. So he'd teach the same lesson again. They'd fail to apply it again. 
If you notice in verse 16 of Matthew 28, here after all this instruction for this three-year period leading up to, and he'd already predicted his resurrection, he says, and you notice verse 16, some still, in verse 17, some were still doubtful. They still haven't gotten all the lessons fully you know, worked down into their belief system, and they're not fully on board yet. Not sure about all this. On numerous occasions, Jesus noted that his disciples and his students were what he called men of little faith. That applies to me. I'm one of those guys. Yep, I've heard that lesson taught to me a number of times. He also referred to some of his disciples. He called them slow of heart to believe. Can you identify with that? See, in the process of teaching Jesus' own 11 disciples there to observe all he commanded them, he exhibited remarkable patience and remarkable forbearance with people who are slow to learn. You see, slow learners, disciples like you and me, we can find great encouragement in one of the lessons that Jesus gave on discipleship. I go back to it again and again, Matthew 11. Would you just turn back there in your Bible? Page 1155. Page 1155, Matthew 11. The last three verses. I want you to hear encouragement, my friend, if you think about the prospect of observing all that Jesus commanded it is a huge undertaking what does jesus say he says come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me there's some good learning my friend learn from me learn of me for i am gentle and humble in heart take that to your heart for a while think about how jesus dealt with those who were slow to learn He's gentle and humble in heart. You shall find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. I like the translation. It is well-fitting. The yoke around your neck. My load is light. See, Jesus spoke comforting words to those who fall short of observing all he commanded. And taking upon ourselves the yoke of Jesus is a call to submit to him and to learn about him. And Jesus calls us to stop focusing on our performance and to study Him. It's to keep our thoughts and minds on Christ. Because Christ is meek and gentle and humble in heart. And He came to rescue and to save us from a performance-based works righteousness that approach to life of which many of us are just bent toward that naturally. We always think we have to do better in order to be received by God. May I remind you of 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, that God's commands are not burdensome. So often that seems to be the way we view them, isn't it? What a burden, what a heavy weight I've got to carry around. Proverbs chapter 3 says that God's ways are ways of pleasantness, and all His paths are peace. Many slow-to-learn disciples tend to forget how gracious Jesus is to those who fail and fall short. And so Jesus reminds us that our motive in serving Him is not, it is not to gain His love. It is not to gain acceptance by how well we observe His commands. 
but it's out of a desire to glorify Him, out of a desire to thank Him and express how grateful we are for all that He is to us and has done for us. And I want to allude at this point to a quote that's in your notes, a very helpful book. It's an outrageous cover on the book. I think they've changed the cover by now. My cover is like knocks you down. Uh, but it's called Transforming Grace, Living Confidently in God's Unfailing Love, Jerry Bridges. Highly commend this book to your reading. Here's a quote about this important principle here, about the motive of thinking about the idea of following Jesus' commands. Quote, we cannot have such a Godward motivation if we think we must earn God's favor by our obedience or if we fear we may forfeit God's favor by our disobedience. Such a works-oriented motivation is essentially self-serving. It is prompted more by what we think we can gain or lose from God than by a grateful response to the grace He has already given us through Jesus Christ. That is a powerful concept to really grapple with and work its way into your heart and mind. Let me add one other comment, another quote I came across. I didn't have time to include it in your notes. Page 99, he says this, To live by grace means we understand that God's blessings on our lives are not conditioned by our obedience or disobedience, but by the perfect obedience of Christ. It means that out of a grateful response to the grace of God, we seek to understand His will and to obey Him, not to be blessed, but because we have been blessed. Wow, that's, that's a huge insight. And let me just point out one more thing here. Stay with me. As I've thought about this way, new way of thinking and how weak and prone we are to failure, Jesus knows we have lack and we have needs, and He is determined to meet those needs as we seek to follow Him and follow His commands. I won't take time to explain it all, but Matthew chapter 10, Jesus taught His disciples about the fact that they're going to find opposition, they're going to find people who are going to uh, eventually make it very difficult for them if they're faithful to Christ. And so knowing their propensity to worry about how they're going to respond to this and the situations that arise like this, and that they're fearful, and that they're very susceptible to failing, Jesus said to them in Matthew 10, 18, and 19, It shall be given you in that hour what you are to speak. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. What an encouragement for those who have been urged to observe all that Jesus commanded us as disciples is to realize that what? We're not doing this on our own. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. And Jesus talked again and again about the provision of the Holy Spirit for His followers. He is the one called alongside, the one who is the helper. It is indeed the one who gives life-giving power. He is promised as one whose indwelling presence is in us. And that he is teaching. He has a teaching ministry that he carries on for us and empowers us for witness. Let me look at John 14 real quickly and I'm done. John 14. You've got to see this. John 14, verses 15 to 18. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Notice the motivation. If you love me, you're keeping my commandments. 
And I ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be what? With you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Here is Jesus saying, I'm going to give you the spirit who's going to take up residence in you. He's going to help you in this endeavor. I know you can't do it on your own. And then skip down to verse 25. These things I have spoken to you, I have instructed you, I have been teaching you, while abiding with you, verse 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. What's he saying here? He's promising the apostles who had misunderstood so many of the spiritual lessons they're supposed to learn. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to help you over all those three years of instruction. I'm going to make sure the Holy Spirit is provided to you to help you be able to put all that together to finally see it and understand it and grasp it in the, in the presence of the New Testament, so that the apostles who composed and wrote the books of the New Testament, the Gospels and the Epistles, that those things are all inerrant, they're accurate insights, and they're going to explain all of Jesus' teaching in such a way that now it's available for us to make use of and further the Holy Spirit helping us gain insight into what Jesus has taught and commanded and required us to do. My friend, there's help out there for us. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Word of God. Indeed, it is Christ enabling us to do what He calls us to do. Let's pray. Lord, surely we would all agree, I would hope, that it is foolish to think that we have kept all your commands. That either we are delusional in our thinking or we're in denial. And so, Lord, I pray that every heart here today would be able to admit that to you. We all would be able to confess, surely I have fallen short of keeping all the commands that Jesus made. And therefore, Lord, we come to celebrate the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, that he is indeed the bread from heaven. He is the one we hope and pray and rely upon and trust for eternal life and for full forgiveness and for all the blessings that come through redemption. They've come through him. And so, Lord, we come to give praise and to proclaim Christ and him crucified, our hope, our joy, the reason and motivation of why we're still pursuing obedience. It's because of you, Lord Jesus, and your great love for us and your sacrifice on the cross. May this be a blessed time, we pray, around your table as we fellowship with you and reflect upon the wonders of your grace and mercy shown to us in the giving of yourself, in your death, burial, and resurrection. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.